Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of those of you who are joining us online and especially want to welcome the real Canadians among us who didn't wimp out again this morning, but despite the snowy, ugly weather made their way here to Central Campus or to one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and Northwest Calgary. God bless you for your faithfulness. Uh, We come now to the final message that I'm going to give on the book of Colossians. And so I'm going to invite you to um, open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Colossians where Paul refers to um, his friends in ministry. Um, Now we uh, read this and we stumbled through these names together last time, so I'm not going to put you through that again. Um, But I do want to remind you that this was far more than a list of names to Paul. No, these were close friends of his whom he loved and he cared about deeply. Now, last time we gave the background uh, story to several of these people, and today I want to do the same uh, for one additional person that Paul refers to here in verse 10, the life of John Mark. But before we do, would you please stand again with me and let's dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And and Lord, we stand in honor of your word and in honor of the living word, Jesus Christ, and his written word, the scriptures, and our, our hands and our hearts are open to you right now. Lord, we want to receive from you. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would focus our minds. And Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 1999, Commander Scott Waddell was given command of the USS Greenville, a brand new 6,900-ton fast attack submarine. It was a dream come true for Waddell, who had had a distinguished career up to that point in time. His strong leadership gifts soon turned his 140-person crew into a family who together received a lot of recognition and many awards for exceptional performance. In his words, his life and his career couldn't have been any better. However, all that changed forever. On February 8th, 2001, when his submarine surfaced and accidentally collided and sank a much smaller ship filled with high school students. The damage was so severe that the vessel sank in less than five minutes, taking the lives of four students, two instructors, and three crewmen. As commander, he was fully responsible for the tragedy, and consequently his life was turned upside down, as you can well imagine. In a matter of hours, 300 media personnel were camped out in his front lawn. His picture was on every major newspaper, 
on every major news channel, along with devastating negative commentary. And in less than 12 hours, he was fired from his job. He felt humiliated, embarrassed, and experienced such utter despair that he actually contemplated taking his own life. Now, I doubt any of us have failed at something of such magnitude. But many of us, I'm sure, could point to a failure in our lives that felt similarly devastating to us. Failure hurts. And consequently, we despise it. We fear it. We do all we can to avoid it. Have you ever thought about how a fear of failure can affect your life? A fear of failure can paralyze your decision-making. You constantly struggle making decisions because you're afraid that you're going to make the wrong one. It can tempt you to procrastinate. You'll read the paper. You'll surf the net. You'll invest all kinds of energy and time in projects other than the paper that needs to be written or the project that you're supposed to be doing because deep down inside you're afraid of failure. The fear of failure can tempt you to rationalize things, to give excuses, to blame other people why you didn't do certain things. It can fill you with worry and hopelessness, make you feel totally overwhelmed and wanting to quit. The fear of failure can make you a workaholic. You never slow down. You never rest. You never relax because you're afraid of failing or being seen by others as a failure. The fear of failure can turn you into a perfectionist. You're so concerned about what others think. You're never satisfied with what you've done or what those who report to you have done, it's never quite good enough. The fear of failure can prevent you from stepping out and doing what God's calling you to do because you're afraid to fail or to be seen as a failure. The fear of failure can not only rob us of joy and peace in life, but it can debilitate us. It can actually prevent us from being all that God created us to be. And it must grieve our Lord when we allow failure or the fear of failure to have this kind of power in our lives. The Bible gives a couple of reasons why some people never quite recover from failure. One reason is our pride. Pride says, I don't want anyone to know that I failed. Now the truth is, no one wants their failures to be broadcast. This isn't golfing season. I don't need to remind you of that. But those of you who are golfers here, you understand this. Most of you golfers, I'm sure, wouldn't be thrilled if we published your golf scores in the Calgary Herald after every game. I know I sure wouldn't. I mean, let's be honest. The best wood that you have in your bag is a pencil with an eraser on the end that you use from time to time to miraculously improve your score. And if our scores were published, many of us would be using that special wood a lot more. 
The truth is we are all very uncomfortable with other people knowing our failures and our shortcomings because we don't want to be seen as weak or as inadequate or as incompetent. And the truth is we know we have flaws. We know we don't have it all together. But pride says, I'm going to do all I can to keep others from knowing it. Now, 1 John 1.9 says this. If we claim to be without sin, in other words, without failure and weakness, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The Bible says unless we get to a point where we have an accurate, sober view of failure, until we see ourselves the way that God sees us and are willing to admit it to ourselves and to others, we will not be set free from our failures or our fear of failure. Nor will we grow through our failures or step out and risk trying anything new. Franklin Roosevelt, I believe, once said, the only person who never makes a mistake is the person who, person who never makes a mistake is the person who never does anything. In other words, the only people that never fail are the people who are dead. But you see, what happens is our failures can actually cause us to shrivel up spiritually, physically, relationally, and miss God's very best for us. A second reason people don't recover from their failure is regret. While some people never admit their mistakes, others never get over their mistakes. They take their failures to bed with them, and they wake up and they chew on their failure for breakfast. They hear tapes playing in their minds constantly. You're a failure. You're a disappointment. You're a disgrace. You're worthless. Now you need to know that these thoughts aren't coming to you from the Lord. They are coming to you from Satan, who's your enemy, who's working against you, who wants to rob you of any hope that you have for your future. John 10.10 10 refers to him as a thief. It says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. But the enemy wants to steal your joy. He wants to um, uh, kill your hope. He wants to destroy your very life. It's the same enemy who convinced Judas that there was no hope for forgiveness and redemption. Well, friends, you don't have to go the way of Judas. You don't have to buy into the lies of Satan. Perhaps you've noticed the Bible's full of stories about people from all walks of life who failed. And I believe God included those stories of failure not only to warn us, first of all, to guard our hearts lest we fall like some of the characters that we see in Scripture, like Moses and David and Peter. But even more importantly, I believe he included these stories to give us hope. 
through the lives of people like Moses and David and Peter. That our failures need not define us, they need not defeat us, but actually can serve to prepare us for all the good and the great things that God wants to do in us and through us for his glory. Which brings us to the life of John Mark, which Paul refers to here in Colossians 4, verse 10. Like so many others, Mark failed, but his failure wasn't fatal or final. Let me give you a little background on his life. John Mark grew up in Jerusalem. In fact, it was in his mother's home where Jesus and the disciples celebrated Passover and the Last Supper in what we now refer to as the Upper Room. Apparently, his mother, named Mary, had the gift of hospitality, and she opened up her home regularly to Christians who needed a place to stay or who needed a place to meet together. Mark was a cousin to Barnabas. And in Acts 13, we read when Paul and Barnabas set out on their, um, on their first missionary journey, they decided to invite Mark along. The three of them traveled together. They talked about Jesus to whoever they encountered along the way. And all goes well until they take a ship to Perga on the southern shore of Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. And they're about to enter a part of the ancient world where they will face significant opposition and hostility. And to get there, they're going to need to travel through dangerous territory where people are regularly robbed and beaten and even killed by bands of thieves and robbers. And as Mark reflects on this, we read in Acts 13, verse 13, that he decides to pack it in and head back home to Jerusalem. Now it appears that Mark pulled out, not because of some emergency like his mother passed away, or because he was sick. No, it seems like he pulled out because he was afraid, or he was discouraged, or maybe even homesick. And I say that because a few years later, if you go to Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas were about to launch out into what we refer to today as the second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take Paul along again. And Paul flatly refuses. In fact, they get into a heated dispute over it, which tells us that in Paul's mind at the time, Mark was a quitter. He was a person who wasn't faithful, who lacked character and courage. Which is why it is so surprising that many years later, here in Colossians 4, Paul speaks so highly of John Mark, referring to him as a co-worker for the kingdom of God and as one of a few, only a few, who proved to be a comfort to him in his time of trial while he was in prison. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last letter that Paul would write, and he wrote it actually through uh, Dr. Luke, who was with him at the time, but He's about to be executed. This is his time of greatest need. In this time, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. You see, something 
had changed in Mark's life over a period of about 12 years from the time that Paul saw Mark as a deserter and as a failure to the time that Paul, who is now at the end of his life, says, you know, if there are three of my closest friends that I want to be with me to minister to me in my final days, it is Luke, it is Timothy, and Mark. In fact, a few years after Mark was executed, I'm sorry, Paul was executed, God chose Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the gospel of Mark. Mark's an encouragement to everyone who has failed in some way and been tempted to call it quits, to stop trying. He's a reminder that failure doesn't have to be the final word. So what happened to Mark? How did he overcome such a devastating failure? Well, first of all, Mark received and embraced the grace of God. Make no mistake, the Apostle Paul was a highly esteemed leader in the early church, and it would have been devastating for Mark to know that Paul saw him the way he did at the time, as a quitter and as a failure. No differently than how you would feel if you knew that the CEO of the company you worked for viewed you as being incompetent or uncommitted or unreliable. Not exactly a great position to be in. And so it would have been tempting for Mark to just say to himself, well, if Paul thinks I don't have what it takes. If he thinks I'm a quitter, then I must be one. And so I may as well be who I am and pack it in. But the Bible tells us that Mark didn't let his failure defeat him or define him. He didn't stay in the dirt. He didn't sit around and sulk. He didn't conclude that God had given up on him. He didn't run from God. He ran to God. He undoubtedly acknowledged his sin. He undoubtedly acknowledged his fear and his lack of courage to God and asked God to grow his faith and his courage and some, in some of these other areas. To end up where he did, Mark clearly must have surrendered himself completely to the Lord, sought to please God rather than others, and committed to living daily in humble dependence upon his Lord's enabling grace. He got up, and he faithfully did whatever it is that God called him to. He aspired for nothing but to be a faithful servant to his Lord. And the day came, when everyone around him, including the Apostle Paul, had a change of mind about who Mark is. They saw him as a man of faith, a man of courage and perseverance, someone who was faithful and could be counted on. You know, church, every one of us fail. Romans 3.23 says, We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all failures. We all fall short of the perfection 
of God. And yes, initially that can sound like bad news, but it's really good news. Because Jesus, out of his irrational love for you and me, he died on a cross to give us an amazing gift to all of us who are failures, to all of us who are still beating ourselves up because of our failures. And it's called grace. It's something we can't give to ourselves. It's something we can't earn. It's something we can't pay for. It's a gift. It's something that God gives to us freely. We need only reach out in faith and receive it. Now, yes, some failures wreak terrible destruction. Others leave a trail of hurt and heartbreak. But if we turn from our sinful failures and turn instead to Christ, there is no failure, no failure that can't be redeemed by the cross. And if we wait for the Lord, if we trust Him and His perfect timing, and we lead into His grace, there is no failure that Christ can't redeem and restore to useful service. Whatever failure may have happened to your distant or your recent past, bring it to the cross and leave it there. Leave it there. Walk away from it and walk toward the living Christ who will restore you in every way. This is what Mark did. He received the amazing grace of God. He didn't just receive it, he embraced it. And God restored him to full and impactful ministry. Secondly, Mark received and embraced the encouragement of Barnabas. Mark recovered first and foremost because he ran to God, not away from God. He ran to God, the lover of his soul. And also because he determined to live daily in humble dependence upon God. But he also didn't run away from his close friends. No, he reached out and received and embraced the help, the hope, the truth that his godly friends shared with him. Including the encouragement that Barnabas gave to him. You know, Acts 4, 36 says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You see, his real name was Joseph. But whenever the disciples saw Barnabas coming, they said, here comes Barnabas. Here comes Mr. Encouragement. Now, Barnabas played a pivotal role in the early church by playing a very significant role in the life of the Apostle Paul. You see, before Paul had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, he was a Pharisee, he was a religious zealot, and he was the number one persecutor of Christians. In fact, he was responsible for the stoning of Stephen. He presided over his death. And so when word got out that Saul, who later became 
renamed Paul. But when word got out that Saul had become a follower of Christ, most of the Christian community in that day were skeptical and most wanted little to do with him. But in Acts 9, it tells us that it was Barnabas who reached out to Paul, who came alongside him and then brought him to the apostles and to the early church and introduced them, introduced him to them, assuring them that Paul's conversion was genuine and that he was the real deal. Barnabas was an encourager. You know, encouragers don't cast stones. No, they extend a hand of friendship and unconditional love. Encouragers are willing to accept you where you are and do whatever they can to help you get to where you need to go. They're the kind of people who don't look at your reputation or your past. They have the wonderful ability to let the past be the past and to start fresh right where you are today. They realize that we've all failed, that we all need the love and grace of God. Encouragers are the kind of the people who are willing to give a second chance, even a third or a fourth. Even though they know there are often painful and lasting consequences that come with some of our failures. Because of God's grace, a failure doesn't have to mean a total and a final failure. Well, I have no doubt that what Barnabas did for Paul, he also did for Mark. He encouraged him not to give up, to not let his failure defeat him, but to go to God, to trust the Lord, to surrender his life, his failure, his inadequacies, his disappointments to the Lord. Now, I can still remember times in my life when I felt lower than a snake's navel and how often in those moments God used someone to encourage me. And some of those conversations lasted only about 45 seconds. And yet I received life-giving, affirming, encouraging words that lifted me up, that helped me to see my situation from God's perspective and filled me with hope and courage to get up and to keep on going. If you think about it, there have been maybe only a half dozen times where someone, God brought someone into your life who shared hope with you or direction or something with you that actually impacted the trajectory of your future. Is there someone in your sphere of influence who has suffered a failure? who's perhaps lost their way? I want to challenge you to whisper a prayer every morning and ask the Lord not only to show you who needs a word of encouragement, but how the Lord would have you encourage them. Thirdly, Mark recovered from failure because he received and embraced the guidance of Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle Peter refers to his spiritual son, Mark. 
which indicates that when Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas and went back home to Jerusalem, he ran into Peter. And Peter kind of took him under his wing and began to mentor him. And you know, in those days and months that Peter mentored Mark, I can hear Peter saying something like this. Mark, trust me. I know what you're going through. I know all about fear. I know all about failure. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was too afraid to admit to a servant girl that I even knew Jesus. And after that failure, Mark, I ran. I ran away from Jesus. I ran away from everyone who mattered to me. I was so embarrassed, so ashamed. I was convinced it was over that I was no good to Jesus anymore. That he was done with me. And so, Mark, what I did is I, I went back to fishing. But then one day while we were out fishing, Jesus showed up. And even though I was expecting him to reprimand me for my betrayal, even though I was expecting him to look me in the eye and say, Peter, I'm so disappointed in you. He never went there at all. All he wanted to know is whether I loved him or not. Whether there was anything or anyone that I cared about more than him. And what he was asking me, Mark, is whether he was enough. Whether he was the object of my highest affection. Or whether it had to be Jesus and something else. Whether it had to be Jesus and success at work. Jesus and lots of money. Jesus and the right spouse. Jesus and the right looks and body shape. Jesus and the right family. You see, Mark, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And I've learned that there's no peace, that there's no contentment, there's no satisfaction in life apart from a close friendship with him. There's no contentment or satisfaction apart from him being at the center of my life. And you know, Mark, when I surrendered my life to him that day, the first thing that he said to me is, okay, Peter, if you love me, then feed my sheep. If you love me, then get up. Get up and pass on my truth. Pass on my love. Pass on my grace, my forgiveness to others. Be my representative wherever it is life takes you. And Mark, by the grace of God, that's what I've done ever since. And I am testimony that God can still use a failure like me to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And that's why I'm challenging you, Mark, to surrender your life totally to Jesus.
to die to your pride, to your feelings of inadequacy and insecurity and your fear of failure, to die to your despair, to your disappointments, to your broken dreams, to your failures, to your regrets. And allow Jesus to be your life and to live his life through you. You see, church, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He was defining for Peter and for us what true success is in life. He was saying that success in God's kingdom is all about humbling yourself. It's all about, it's all about realizing that it's not about you. It's not about what others think or about what others think about you. It's about knowing and loving and living all out for the Lord. It's about calling out to God daily to guide you and to be involved in all that you do. It's a humility that is so real that there is only one overarching passion and desire in life and that is to win the approval and the smile of God and God alone. Genuine humility means you realize that there isn't a penny that you own. There isn't a talent that you express. There isn't a physical attribute that you possess. There isn't a victory you achieve. There isn't a heartbeat that keeps you alive that isn't a gift from God. And therefore, you have no reason to compare yourself favorably or unfavorably with others or to fear or be concerned about what others think of you. And I can just hear Peter say to Mark, Mark, through my own failures, I've learned the greatest failure you've ever had to face can be the very instrument that God can use to make an impact through you going forward. If it humbles you and makes you realize that your need of God isn't partial, but total. You know, one of the most powerful things we can do for others who fail, who've lost their way, is to do what Peter did. To acknowledge that apart from the grace of God, we're sinners. And instead of looking down on those who fail or piously gossiping about those who fail, humbly coming alongside those who have failed and sharing with them some of our struggles, some of our failures, and how Jesus has helped us overcome them, how Jesus has made the difference. Now, church, is there anyone in your life that you've written off? Anyone in your life you've stopped praying for? Anyone in your life you've stopped reaching out to? You know, Peter's life and Mark's life are testimony that we should never write anyone off. Be open to what God wants to do 
in their lives. Don't assume that their story is over. No, keep trusting, keep praying for them, for God to accomplish his purpose in their lives. In closing, I just want to say again that there is no failure greater than the grace of God. As long as there is the grace of God, your failure need not be final. As long as there is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, there is still time to take heart and to take hope. There is still time to find the forgiveness of our Lord, to surrender to Him and to get up and follow Him wherever it is He leads, knowing that He will never leave you or forsake you or lead you astray. And please remember this, as long as there is the grace of Jesus Christ, God can turn your greatest failure into his greatest victory. His greatest victory, not yours. If you'll humble yourself and trust him. You know, Peter, he humbled himself. He wept bitterly. He told the Lord how sorry he was for his betrayal. He put his trust in the Lord and 50 days after his biggest failure, he stepped out in faith and he humbly and yet boldly declared the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people embraced Christ in response to his message that day. Friends, if your greatest failure has brought you to a place of genuine brokenness and repentance then God can use you as much, if not more, than the person of success. I mean, let's be honest. People have a hard time relating to those who seem to have it all together, who seem to have it all. You know, good looks, talent, brilliant mind, captivating personality, thick hair, I mean, if these people come across as prideful and like to wax eloquent about their success, isn't it true? We, we're just not drawn to them. There isn't much that we learn from them. On the other hand, people will learn a lot from both of our success and our failure if we're humble and honest about it. It's not about the perfection of your life. It's about the humility of your heart. It's about the direction of your life that God can and will use to impact others through you. This last week, I sat for two and a half hours and listened to about 200 people in our freedom sessions essentially share their weakness and how Jesus has made all the difference. And as I sat there, and I've sat through these now for probably 10 years, I found myself saying again and again, this is the church. This is what Christ intended his church to be. Not people walking into a place like this, you know, in their best dress or whatever, and, and kind of putting on, you know, I've got it all together, but people who are transparent, honest about their failures and their weakness with one another. And the thing I observed 
is you know they, they have these um, groups of people that um, they share with, and they sort of came up and shared together. And even though it was pretty evident to me that some of the people were from all different walks of life, I could tell they'd grown really close. And the closeness came because they stopped putting on an air that I've got it all together and stopped being real about their weakness and that they need Jesus just like the rest of us. That's the church. That's what Christ intended the church. Failure can be a great teacher. If you feel you failed in some way as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, or perhaps in some other way. But through it, God has humbled you and changed your heart in a good way. I want you to realize that you have so much wisdom, so much experience to share with others who've just gone through the same failure or others who are headed that way. You have much to give to the kingdom. Don't let the enemy convince you that you're done. Don't give up. Don't give in to the way of Judas. No, choose the pathway of Peter, the pathway of John Mark, the pathway of King David. Jesus came. He died. And he rose from the dead to make it possible. He's reaching out to you and to me. And he's saying, do you love me enough? Do you trust me enough to forget what is behind and to strain toward all that I have for you in the future? You can trust him completely. He will never leave you or forsake you or lead you astray. And I can say that in full confidence because of what we have studied together here in the book of Colossians. I want to remind you of what Paul said about Jesus. Chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That includes you and me. We were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's holding the planets, our entire solar system, the universe together. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't that a good word? Free from accusation. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let it rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Let's stand together. And so friends, we will have essentially wasted our time here this morning unless we ask ourselves these two questions and respond to them. Would you open your hands to the Lord again and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me about my failure, about my regrets? Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Some of you, like in the other services, may just need to slip out of your seat. Maybe God's just encouraging you to do something very physical, and that is to come up here and take that backpack of regret and failure that's strapped to you and you've been lugging around for years, perhaps and to leave it at the cross. And others of you may be thinking of someone who's lost their way, who's really struggling with failure and disappointment. And maybe you just want to pray for them. Maybe you want to seek the Lord's wisdom in terms of what he would have you to do or to say. If God's prompting you to do that, I want to encourage you to come. Be obedient to him. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Let's take a moment right now and allow him to speak to us.
Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the example of Peter, the example of John Mark, and so many others in Scripture. And how, Lord, how they moved past their failures and how they found victory. I just pray for everyone in this room, others who are um, watching online. Lord, that this would be the day they take that backpack and Lord, they, they take it off and they leave it at the cross. Lord, give us a love. Give us a heart of compassion for others around us who are struggling with failure, who have lost their way. And give us wisdom, Lord, to know how we might be used by you to make a difference in their lives. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. We just commit ourselves anew to you. And I pray, Lord, that all who are hearing my voice right now, that all of them, Lord, will not just hear the word, but Lord, they will follow through with what you're calling them to do. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.